This is Truth and Focus, your radio program for worldview talk and issues that matter, with Josh Cumston and Gordon Teeson, broadcasting from the studio at Nebraska Christian Schools. Welcome to Truth and Focus. I'm Gordon Teeson. Today's program, we're going to have a special guest, Gracia Burnham. She was a missionary with New Tribes Missionaries, and she most is well known for writing two books about her missionary experiences. One of them is the book, The Presence of My Enemies. The other is To Fly Again. In 2001, she was with her husband when they were captured by a group and her husband was shot and killed. That is the subject of the books and what she came to talk about at Nebraska Christian Schools. So with that, let's join Gracia with today's message. There was a long night in October when we were held captive. By that time, we'd been in the jungle about five months, and we were getting to know the guys who were holding us hostage, learning their stories. Some said that they were coerced into becoming Abu Sayyaf members. You know, if a band of 30 Abu Sayyaf with their guns and machetes came through your village, and asked for three volunteers, it's pretty likely that your village would come up with three volunteers to send with them because everybody'd heard what happened if you didn't comply with the Abu Sayyaf that came through. Massacres, beheadings, looting. One kid had spent a lot of time with Martin. I can't remember his name anymore, which bothers me a little bit. This kid was probably about 18 years old, and his father was a poor fisherman. He had no education, but he fell in love with a girl in a neighboring Muslim village. And in their culture, the guy pays the dowry, the bride price, and the family was asking 50,000 pesos, $1,000 or so, which might be a lot for some of us in America to come up with, but how much more this kid whose family had nothing. So he decided to join the Abu Sayyaf in hopes that he would be around when a ransom payment was made and he could get his share of the money and go get married to his sweetheart. This particular night, we'd heard the military was near, so we had mobiled long into the night. We walked till 3.30, 4 in the morning, and we were just exhausted. We lay down in a field of long grass to get some rest. There was dew on the grass. It was wet, but we didn't care. We would have laid anywhere at that point. Suddenly, the sky lit up with a bright light, almost daylight, and a parachute opened, and this light floated to the ground right near us. Anyone watching could have seen the whole group, and Martin leaned towards me, and he whispered, Oh, no, they found us. That was a flare. They were just confirming that we were here. And I expected us to get up and get out of there because one of the unwritten rules between the Abu Sayyaf and the military was we never had gun battles at night. But no one moved. We couldn't go on. We were too tired, and we lay there the rest of the night. Early the next morning, right at dawn, We heard the rumble of what they called six-bys, six-by-sixes, huge trucks with flatbeds on the back, and we knew they were full of soldiers, and we got up and moved out of this sheltered area to cross a field into the jungle, and within minutes, we heard someone over in the trees yell, there they are, hoy, it's the Abu Sayyaf, and the guns started blaring. 
Well, this is it, I thought, as we ran and dropped and ran and dropped. Our guards would tell us when to run, when to drop. There was automatic gunfire everywhere. The pops of rocket launchers, thumps might be a better way to describe that sound. People yelling, the smell of gunpowder, and somehow we made it across that field and reached the edge of the woods and got behind some big, huge boulders while the group regrouped. And little by little, everybody started gathering and we went running off down the trail into the jungle. And when we stopped an hour or so later for a rest, I heard that that kid, you know, the kid whose name I can't remember, was killed in the gun battle, shot in the gut with a 57 mortar, and I was devastated. Here was this kid. He just wanted to get married, who'd made some poor choices entering eternity without God. And I didn't want to think about it, but I couldn't help but think about it. And the horrible situation that these kids were in and how things kept going from bad to worse for us. And I was so scared and depressed and I just sat there and bawled. And then I started thinking, Gracia, you need to get yourself together. We're going to have to start walking again soon. So I started to thank God for all the good things he'd done for us that day. We were still alive. We weren't wounded. I had lost my big black burqa type headdress that was so oppressive that I just hated. It had fallen somewhere out on the field when we were running and dropping so I could feel the wind in my hair again. And as I sat cross-legged on the ground, I realized that in every situation, if you look, there is good because God is in every situation. No matter how hopeless things seem to you, God can redeem that situation and give you peace. Scripture says, I am the Lord. Is there anything too hard for me? No, nothing is too hard for God. And I want to thank those of you who prayed for us. I think there are a few here that prayed. I never want to pass up the opportunity to say thank you. We needed your prayers, and I think I'm a living testimony of what prayer can do. I never get tired of telling my story of God's faithfulness in the jungle. I love telling how God can work in your life and maybe what I share will encourage you as you go on through life that God is great and mighty and he can work in your life. One huge lesson that I learned in the jungle was I saw myself for what I really was. You know, at the beginning of our hostage days, I thought I was the good guy and the Abu Sayyaf were the bad guys at the beginning. But as the days drug on and on, as we got hungrier and dirtier, as we suffered from lack of sleep because we couldn't get comfortable sleeping on the jungle floor, when we got dysentery and diarrhea, when there was no place to take a bath, no clean clothes to change into, and I started feeling more like an animal than a human being, the real me began to surface. What was in my heart came out, and it was shocking. That was the hardest thing. I was suddenly faced with myself. Here's a journal entry that I scribbled one day on some borrowed paper using a pen that barely worked. And this is not pretty. As for me, I feel I'm that very bottom carving on God's totem pole. 
I guess somebody has to be on the bottom. My pride and selfishness make me want to belong a bit higher than that, though. I've given up making plans for the future. I'll plan if we ever get out of here. We were so foolish to think we would get out because someone would have mercy on us. It shows the depression that I was sinking down into. One day I was really mad at Musab. Musab was the quote-unquote spiritual leader of the group, and I didn't like him. This particular day, Musab had given us his extra rice to carry because he was lazy and he didn't want to do it. And as we hiked up and down mountains, my anger grew and grew. And at one stop, I told Martin, Musab's going to burn in hell one day and I hope I'm there to see it. And Martin looked at me with this shocked look on his face like a bunch of you have right now. I wish you could see yourselves. <laughs> he said, Gracia, that's exactly what's going to happen to Musab if he doesn't accept Christ as his personal Savior. But can you imagine witnessing the wrath of God poured out on a person? Even thinking that should make you pray for Musab, not hate him. Oh, I was so hateful. And Martin, he just knew what to say, that guy. I didn't know what sort of man I was married to. I knew he was a neat Christian, but I never understood before our captivity his Christ-likeness, his thinking through things in a godly way, and I just appreciate that about him. And Martin very gently pointed my sin out to me. And when I got a good look at myself and saw the awfulness of what was happening to me, I cried out to God, God, I don't want to be this way, but I hate this guy. I want to be characterized by love and joy and peace, not hate and depression and being hard to get along with. Can you help me? Sometimes I think we're in such a bad way that we think not even God can help us. Have you ever felt that way? And we started to walk again, and there was this huge mountain ahead of us that we were going to have to climb. And as I started up that mountain, these words hit me. I don't know how else to describe it. Beautiful words from the scriptures. Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin that does so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race set before us, looking unto Jesus the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. And it was suddenly so clear to me, the weight I needed to set aside that day wasn't the extra rice Musab was making me carry. It was the weight of the sin of hatred and unforgiveness that I wasn't willing to give up. Lay aside every weight. Just lay it down. Decide you're not carrying that hatred anymore. Give it up. And I kept thinking this through in my mind. And once the weight is gone, run with patience the race set before you. The race before me today is getting to the top of that mountain. Do it one step at a time with patience, and when you think you can't take any more or take one more step, look to Jesus, because Jesus can sympathize, Gracia. He knows how you feel. 
One day, Jesus carried a heavy load up a mountain for me. When I saw my sinfulness and the Holy Spirit began to convict me of my need, that's when I began to find forgiveness in my heart. It's hard to forgive when you think you're the good guy. When you finally realize we're all the same, we're awful sinners before God in great need of forgiveness ourselves, we can start to forgive others. And I think that's misleading. I don't think I did it. I think the Holy Spirit began doing a work in me because I didn't have it in my flesh to forgive. But God, he can do anything. And he has started a good work in me, and he promised that he's going to complete it. And he started teaching me forgiveness. There was this one kid, Ahmad. He was about 14 years old. There were young kids there as well as older guys. But for the most part, the young kids did the things the other guys didn't want to do. They carried the heavy loads or went and fetched the firewood. But Ahmad was different because his uncle was the number two man of the Abu Sayyaf, and he carried an M14. And since he had a weapon, that gave him status, even though he was just a kid. And he was very proud of himself. Well, you know how 14-year-old boys are. They're always hungry. And we would go for days sometimes with nothing to eat. And then food would make its way into camp. And I would watch Ahmad steal our group's food and eat it all by himself. And I was filled with envy at that boy. I was the lowest hostage. I was an American and I was a woman. And Ahmad decided I was someone he could boss around. And we'd be walking down the jungle trail and he would follow me, saying one of the few English words he knew. Pasteur, pasteur, pasteur. Faster, faster. I couldn't go any faster. We were in a line. One day they allowed me and Martin to go to the river for a bath. And when I talk about a bath, we would just step into the stream or the river with all our clothes on and we would get ourselves wet. And if we had soap, we would soap up under our clothes and we would rinse off and we would drip dry. Well, they asked Ahmad to be our guard. He didn't want to do that. He wanted to be out on guard duty or hanging around in his hammock. And he had to take the Americanos to the river, so he had a bad attitude. And as I was taking my bath, he started in on me. Pasteur, pasteur, pasteur. So I started going faster, faster. I guess not fast enough for him, because he started picking up rocks, throwing them at me. Pasteur, pasteur. Well, I'd had it with that kid. I wasn't used to being told what to do especially by a 14-year-old, and I just laid into him in English. I said, Ahmad, if you don't stop that, I'm going to take the longest bath in the history of all baths, and you will never get back to your hammock. Well, he had no idea what I was saying, right? He just knew Mrs. Burnham was mad again, and the rocks just kept coming till finally Martin said sternly, stop that, and he stopped throwing rocks. A few weeks later, we were in a gun battle, number 13, and Ahmad was wounded in the leg, and we were really in trouble. There was military everywhere, and because of that, they couldn't get Ahmad to the medical help that he needed, and he started to get feverish and yell out of his head a lot. They would have to help him do everything. They carried him for weeks, and one day, I could tell he was very upset about something, and I found out that he had messed his pants. 
there'd been no one to help him go to the bathroom. This thought came from the Holy Spirit of God, you guys. I thought, what if this was my boy in this situation? Because I had a 14-year-old boy back at home. I would want someone to help him. And I went over to him and asked in my faltering Cebuano, the only language we shared a little bit of, I asked him if I could do his washing for him. And as I took his clothes down to the river and as I washed them out and threw them over the bushes to dry in the sun, in that moment, God totally changed my heart towards that kid. He gave me a love for him. I can't explain it. Ahmad eventually went mad. He went ranting and raving crazy. The last time I saw him, they were sneaking us off of an island and we had to go through a fisherman's hut to get down to the pier. And I heard noises over in the corner and I thought it might be a big rat or something. And I looked over there and there was Ahmad. He was skin and bones. His hands were tied to one side of the hut. His feet were tied to another. There was a sock stuck in his mouth so he couldn't cry out. There was a hat pulled down over his eyes so he couldn't see. And I wonder where Ahmad is today. Is he dead? Has he recovered and he's walking down a jungle trail, pestering some other hostage? Is he still crazy somewhere? I'm so glad I had the opportunity to be generous with that boy because I can look back on him and not have any regrets, but it's because God changed my heart and gave me the grace to help someone instead of hate them. And God is in the heart-changing business. That's what he does best, and God's still changing me. Aren't you glad that God's promised that he's not going to leave us the way he finds us? He's promised to change us so that we look just like our Lord Jesus. What a promise. Then, after a year of captivity, I came home alone without Martin, and I came home very weak, and I learned that God shows up and he is strong in your life when you're weak. And I learned that there can be joy after a horrible experience. I learned kindness and generosity from the people of God. Kindness after kindness was shown to me and my children by some of you very folks here. Can I tell you about my kids? My children were 14, 12, and 11 when we were taken hostage. They're grown now, they have children, so I'm a grandma five times. My oldest boy became a missionary pilot like his dad. They lived in Botswana, Africa for a term. They've come home just recently because their son has some health issues and God's been really good to them. They're gonna stay home for a while. My daughter, Mindy, she married a New Tribes missionary kid from Paraguay, South America, and Andy is a good guy, and he's the youth pastor at our church, and they have two little kids. And then my youngest boy, Zach, and he's at Calvary Bible College in Kansas City, Missouri. Everybody at Calvary gets a Bible degree, and his second degree is in voice performance. And God's just really been good to us. And I've learned that God answers prayer. The kids and I have been praying for the guys who held us 
hostage. And we've asked people like you all over the world to start praying for them that they would get to hear the gospel in their own language in an understandable manner. And why are we surprised when God does something awesome and answers our prayer? I don't know. Oh, me of little faith. In the last few years, I have found a bunch of the guys that held us captive. They're in a maximum security prison in Manila for the rest of their lives, 23 or so of them. Former Abu Sayyaf that we lived with and hiked with and starved with. There's Zacharias, who on May 27 burst into our room at Dos Palmas with his M16. He was so surprised to find out that he and our youngest son had the same name, Zachary, that we would name one of our children after one of their Muslim prophets. Also in prison is Daoud. He was the guy that used to sit and talk with Martin when we would rest during our long days of hiking. Daoud's job was to carry the solar panels through the jungle. The solar panels would help charge the sap phones and the cell phones so they could talk to the outside government negotiators. Daoud's wife and child had died in childbirth, and since he found himself with no family, no means of support, and the economy is horrible in the southern Philippines, he joined the Abu Sayyaf almost as a career move. Daoud and Martin would sit and talk about all sorts of things from jihad, holy war, to being shaheed, being martyred. They discussed Daoud's hopes and dreams. Also in jail is Bashir. We called him Bas for short. He was shot in the same gun battle that Martin died in, the one that led to my rescue. Bashir was unable to keep up with the group as they retreated down the river, so they left him behind to fend for himself in the jungle with 500 pesos, $10. You can't buy anything in the jungle. You can't take care of yourself. And several days later, the military found him, and gangrene had moved into his leg, and it had to be amputated. He sends me notes every once in a while. Can I read you the first one he ever sent me? We had to get it translated. It was written in his dialect. It says, I am Bas. I, Bas, wrote you to ask you how you are. How about you there, Gracia? I'm here now at maximum security, and my foot was cut off. Do you still remember the experiences we had? Like, no. <laughs> Sounds like summer camp, doesn't it? I still remember every time I cook food, I cook eel good. He did cook eel good. At one point, we were starving, and we came across this mountain stream that had eel in it, and the guys crafted fish traps from stuff they harvested in the jungle, and they caught the eel, and that's what we ate for several days, and Bas was the cook. Everything you said, I will never forget. Even though I'm here in jail, I has no fault. Yeah, right, he's the kid that one day chopped a guy's head off, came up the hill with blood spattered all over his yellow t-shirt. How can he say he has no fault? I also told you, when I'm free, I will go with you to America. But my dreams did not go through. My dream was to become a businessman, but it did not materialize because I'm in jail. 
It's difficult to be in jail. It's very hot here, and it's pitiful here, and no one visits me here. I want to see you if you have a picture to send me. Take care always, and he signs it, your friend. I've been able to reconnect with these prisoners through an American couple that works in the prison, and we get together and figure out ways to show the love of Christ to these guys, and I could spend an hour telling you this story, but... Awesome things are happening in the prison. These guys are reading the scriptures in their own dialects. Some of them are going to Bible studies. I'm supporting several of the poorest of the poor so they have some means of buying soap so they can take a bath and wash their clothes. So far, four former members of the Abu Sayyaf have come to know the Lord Jesus as their Savior. One of them is a very violent man with over 20 counts of murder against him. A new person in Christ, a brother in the Lord, and there's great interest in spiritual things amongst the Muslims in the prison. And we really can't believe what God's doing, and it's not over till it's over, is it? And we just keep praying, and I wonder if you would want to pray. When you think about me and my story, pray for those guys in prison, especially for Zacharias, Zachary, who's very hard and resistant towards anything having to do with the gospel. Had I known when we were going through our hard year in the jungle that one day even one of those guys would come to know Jesus because of our experience, I think the days would have been easier to bear. And I could kick myself now and say, would it not have been enough to trust a good God with the days of my life? Can we begin to believe that God takes us into hard situations, not to crush us, but so we can learn to see his hand and learn to trust him when he's doing a good work? And God didn't say, oops, when Martin and I were taken hostage. And he didn't sit and wring his hands like we did for a year, wondering, what do I do now? And God's plan is good. It's always good. Whether we understand it or not, whether we necessarily like it or not, because God's good. He's always good. And I've been reminded that there cannot be a harvest without seed planters. Telling people about the love of Jesus isn't always comfortable. Maybe it's uncomfortable for you and you don't see any fruit for your labors. You might wonder why you were called to plant seeds because you're not even good at it. But all of a sudden you see what God's doing. And I've been reminded that the seed we planted in the jungle wasn't wasted. Others are reaping what we sowed ever so long ago. God's almighty. He can do anything. So keep planting those seeds, my friend. Keep telling people about the love of Jesus. If God's touching your heart with missions, I would love to talk to you about Wyumi, a mock tribal village that New Tribes Mission has set up in Pennsylvania. You know, if, if I was God, I wouldn't have chosen me to go through a year in the jungle. I'm a city girl. I don't even like to camp. I would have chosen somebody who was big and strong, who'd had survival training and who I knew would handle things really well. And the other puzzling thing that God did with our story is the strong one, Martin, died. And the weak one came home to tell the story and have the ministry and raise the children. Don't you think God would have chosen the strong one to do that? God's ways aren't our ways. And I have to wonder if he chose to make me this huge object lesson that God uses weak 
things. Several places in scripture it talks about how God doesn't choose the wise and the mighty. He often chooses the weak. And I wonder if he does that so when people see what happens, they say, wow, God did that. Everybody knows that I didn't have the strength to live for a year in the jungle. Wow, God did that. And I want to encourage you with this today. If God can use me, this weak vessel, he can use anybody. He can use you. Just make yourself available for him to use. You've been listening to a message by Gracia Burnham. She's a former missionary with New Tribes Ministries, and she has two books. One book was The Presence of My Enemies. The other was To Fly Again. You've been listening to Truth and Focus. For my co-host, Josh Cumston, this is Gordon Thiessen. Thanks for joining us as we encourage, engage, and equip Christians in today's culture war while bringing the truth in focus.